Lord, we come to you today asking for your wisdom and, Lord, for discernment as we come to your word. And, Lord, I ask that as your messenger that I would simply reflect, Lord, your truth in a clear and accurate way, that my words, Lord, would simply be a reflection of what you desire for us to hear. Lord, if you would uh, take anything that might seem confusing and, Lord, make it clear that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to challenge us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, Lord, uh, as we seek to live our lives for you. And, Lord, if there's someone here who's still struggling with um, bowing the knee to you, that from this text of Scripture, Lord, that you would speak mightily, that your gospel be beautiful and seen clearly for what it is. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention this morning as we begin to verse 31. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I appreciated how Ed began our services. We actually did not coordinate talking about this, but I think what we have here is really profound in the midst of what Jesus is saying in this prophecy. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. These words are spoken by Jesus in this text to reinforce the importance and the authority of his words. And they reveal for us two realms where mankind places his trust. There's one realm, that realm where the people are fully engaged in the world of God's creation. Now, God created his world. It's a beautiful world, but they put their faith in the perceptions that they have and the feelings that they have about God's created world. And then there's uh, another group of people who are fully engaged in trusting the word of God, where faith in God who created the world shapes their worldview and rules the day. You see, it says heaven and earth will pass away. God's creation will pass away. But his words will not pass away. Are we going to focus on creation or are we going to focus on the world? And so uh, this is the challenge to mankind to believe the words of Christ and his counsel rather than their own wisdom that comes from this creation world. And in a day like we are living today where knowledge and technology have given man the ability to harness so much of God's creation, there can be a tendency for mankind to drift away from trusting God's word and instead trust their own confidence and their own sophistication. As such, for modern man, with his self-sufficiency and his sophistication, to come to a text like ours is a real challenge. I mean, think about it. To hear about prophecies, fulfillments, darkened sun and moon, stars falling from heaven and a returned king coming in the clouds with power and glory can seem a bit much. It's almost like something out of a Marvel movie or something you might see on the sci-fi channel. But let me remind you that prophecy is reality that the scriptures speak about, and it is true. Prophecies have been made countless times in scripture, 
and their fulfillment has taken place. And we see that during the course of the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. There have been prophecies about the nation of Israel that have been fulfilled. There are prophecies about world empires that have clearly been fulfilled. There are prophecies about the Messiah, which, which Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of. But if you don't care to open the pages of God's word, if the word of God to you is, is really kind of a, a strange thing or a collection of man's ideas. I mean, I heard yesterday on the radio someone saying, well, this guy who's, who's, a, who's a, a Christian doesn't believe that the Bible is actually inspired by God. It's, it's one man's ideas. And it's like, what kind of historical world does that person live in to come up with that conclusion? Not recognizing that these words were written by multiple people over the course of time. How can it be one man's words? So people don't look, they don't study, they're not open to what God's word says. They want to live their lives based on their own ideas that come out of God's creation. But of course, as we come closer here, Jesus himself has prophesied. He's prophesied that he is the temple that's going to be destroyed and raised up in three days. He's prophesied about him coming to Jerusalem where he's going to be mocked and scorned and he's going to be put to death but he's going to rise again the third day. And of course, he prophesies about the temple being destroyed in AD 70. Now the question is this. Will he ever return again? He said he would, but how can we be certain? Jesus' words to us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, are given to us to caution us, to counsel us, and to guide us they're given to us so that we will look to put our trust in what he says rather than what we can see, feel, or touch. And that was the impact of what Ed was saying as he turned to 2 Peter. Here they are, standing and seeing Jesus, and he says, although that's good, we have a more sure word of prophecy. The word of God can be trusted. And if that is true, and since that is true, we can rest on that sure word and we can be confident that he is coming again. Now the structure of our text really focuses on the promise of the Lord's return. It can be divided into three parts, although that's not going to be my outline, but it is going to be something that can be divided into three parts. We have, first of all, the events surrounding his coming, then we have the, the timing of his coming talked about. And then at the end, we have this challenge for the disciples as they wait for his coming. He's like he rounds it off with just a, a couple of statements at the end to kind of push it home. And so this morning, I would like to think through our passage and hang on this particular proposition. We're called to be discerning and faithful disciples waiting for the coming of the Lord. So discernment and faithfulness are, are what God is calling us to. We've seen that already as we looked last week, but this is where it comes from. And so I want to begin this morning by talking about, first of all, the character of his coming that is foretold. In other words, what will his coming look like? And let's read now verses 24 through 27 again. 
But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and, they will, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I'd like to propose to you five ways or five uh, realities about his coming that flow out of this passage. First of all, his coming is certain. It says we will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. We will see. All through this prophecy is this word repeated, will. He will come. This will take place. And it emphasizes the certainty of his words and his return. This is going to happen. Now, some may mock. Some may scorn. Some might call you a fool. But Jesus has said it. He has spoken it. It is his word. And by virtue of his prophecies, he has proven himself to be trustworthy. So there's no reason for you or me to not believe what he says. It is certain. He is coming again. Secondly, it is imminent. And it says, in those days after the tribulation. Now, there's, no, there's, there's not given to us any specific time between the statement, that tribulation, which would be the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and the Lord's return. Again, but in those days after the tribulation. It doesn't say immediately after. This is purposely ambiguous. But it says after. So it's, it's saying that his return will take place after the tribulation is over. And since the destruction of the temple has already taken place, he can return any time. It's imminent. Third, it's glorious. It's glorious. Just, just take in the words here. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. These cosmic images, a darkened sun, a moon not giving its light, stars falling from heaven, they're all woven together statements from the Old Testament, from Isaiah 13.10 or Joel chapter 2. Now, they're not taken to be signs preceding the Lord's return, but events that accompany his return. So we're not to walk around looking for these signs, but these signs will happen when he comes. This is all part of the entourage of his coming. He's coming, and these events will take place. These are upheavals in the created world. The creator of the universe, the son of man, now harnesses the universe he has created to come in power and glory, and it will be like nothing man has ever seen before. Now, I just want, I want you to think about this. I mean, how is society affected when there's going to be like an eclipse? Hear about it on the news. People anticipate they get up, you know, either, you know, the, at particular times to make sure they can see exactly what's going to happen at that point in time. You may have had the opportunity to see some pretty amazing things. Anyone here ever seen the, the northern lights before? Hey, living in Michigan, you go north, and there, uh, sometimes if, if the weather's just right, you can see the, the northern lights. And we are seeing meteor showers, okay? 
I remember when I was first in California, down in, um, I wasn't down, I was actually up in Yosemite, and I had to sleep outside just on a cot, and I looked up, and that night it was just like, just meteors. And it was just an amazing thing. Now, if I had lived years ago, it would be like, ah, you know, the gods are speaking, and but, you know, these are, these are wonderful things that creation shows us. All right, and then we have things like, you know, lightning. You know, I, I love being in a lightning storm. I don't know about you. I do. No pun intended, but I get all charged up about it, okay? Right? Why? And I tell you what, I, I not only like the, 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 uh, the flash lightning, I mean, and you see things, sparks. I've been, remember driving in Michigan and driving down the road and lightning's hitting, you know, uh, light posts and things like that and there's sparks going on and you can just feel the energy in the air. You don't experience that often. I was thankful that I had, you know, rubber tires at that point in time. But I also love flash, uh, uh, sheet lightning. You ever seen sheet lightning before? It's just like the, the whole of the sky is just like, Storm clouds, of course, you know, on the East Coast right now, they're, they're facing all of that. They are magnificent in one sense. They are an amazing demonstration, creation's power. Then, of course, there are the eclipses that take place. But, friends, those creation wonders will be child's play compared to what happens when the Lord returns. All this is happening at one time. It would be glorious. It would be an amazing thing. But not only that, it will be universal. It will be universal. It says, this cosmic tumult will make it obvious to all. They will see it. Notice the text doesn't say, then you will see the Son of Man coming. It says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is not a secret coming, but one that everyone will see. This is universal. This is powerful. And then finally it says here in verse 27, and I would call this, it's reconciling. And, the, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth and the ends of heaven. This is where First Thessalonians comes into focus, uh, which we looked at a, a few weeks ago. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead and Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Those who are alive, those who are dead, all of them will be gathered together. A gathering, a glorious gathering of God's elect. And that elect is not Israel, that elect is the church. Friends, Jesus will come back. He is coming back again. What do you think about that? Are you frightened? Do you want him to come back soon? Maybe you're thinking there's some life experiences I want to have before he comes back. I think J.D. mentioned a few of these as he was preaching on that text in 1 Thessalonians, but maybe you're saying in your heart, Lord, I love you, I really do, but can't you just wait a little bit longer so I can get married? Or, or Lord, I, I love you, I really do, but can you wait till the, the honeymoon is over at least? Or, or, Lord, you know I love you, but I would really love to have this baby. 
I mean, there are things that are just tied to this world that we love. But friends, the joy that God gives us in this life will pale in comparison to the joy of being present with him. Now, I realize that's hard for us to comprehend because we live in this world. This is the world we see and understand, but God wants us to take our eyes off of this world and to see the beauty and the joy in the anticipation of his return. It is our blessed hope. It's not that thing that eh, we're looking forward to. No, it is our blessed hope. Now, this is all good news, but it isn't, I shouldn't say, it isn't all good news. There are two things that will happen on his return. Let's just think through this. First of all, he will come back to judge the world. Part of his coming in this glory and power, part of this demonstration of, 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 of manipulating his creative world is to, is to present himself as this judge coming to judge the people. Everyone will know that Jesus is king. Everyone will fall on their knees and worship him. Whether they've done it before or not, they will be forced to. But it will be too late to ask Jesus for forgiveness. It will be too late to plead your case. You will have no leg to stand on. The word of his gospel went out. And as it went out, you had opportunity to bow down to him. Now, some listened to the word of God and believed. Some listened to his words and they rejected them. Others put, put off taking those words seriously and said, ah, maybe a little bit later I'll consider it. They, they missed out. Judgment is coming, friends. He has been fair. He's been long-suffering. He has been kind and gracious. But there comes a time when we must give account. When I say we, I'm talking about those who have not put their faith and trust in him. Those who have not bowed the knee. Now friends, that seems like a harsh thing. Especially in our culture today because people are always looking for loopholes. And people always feel like, well, you know, I know that judge made that decision. But he's wrong and he's thinking about you can't argue with God. And when he comes and he judges, you will stand alone and he will say, are you one of my children? And you will be forced to say, no, I am not. And you will be the the recipient of his fury and his wrath because of your sinful rebellion against him. Listen to Revelation 6. It gives us a picture of what that will look like. Revelation 6, verses 12 and following. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great ones uh, and the, the generals and the, the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Now I know 
In our society, people just laugh and, and, and mock at, at the foolishness of those words. But friend, this is, this is God speaking. And if you, if you read that and you say, no, eh, you're in very dangerous territory. And you will, unless God intervenes, find yourself under his full-blown wrath. Are you ready for that day? Now, you could be a part of a church for years and never actually bow the knee before God. Put on the garments of Christianity and do the things that people do in the Christian context, but never actually say, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my Lord and Savior. Now, I understand that it is God who begins the process in us, but we have to ask ourselves this question. Have I bowed the knee? Have I responded in faith and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is he my Lord and Savior? I would just encourage you, I plead with you, if that's not the case with you, ask Jesus now to forgive you Serve him now as your king. Judgment is a reality, friends. But not only will he come back to judge the world, he will also come back for his people. <laughs> Again, this is our blessed hope, isn't it? And then he will send out the angels and gather the elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. What God has promised for his children will take place, so we don't need to be afraid. Now, hear this. Yes, we will be afraid of the magnificence of the Son of Man descending in power and glory, and who would not be? He is God. He is holy. He is mighty. He is righteous. He is all-knowing, but he's also gracious. He's merciful. He's kind. He's forgiving. And I'm reminded of that conversation in the, the Chronicles of Narnia between the beavers and Susan about Aslan the lion. The beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now, friends, you see, sometimes we want to soften who God is. We want to soften who Jesus is. Jesus is not safe. The God of this universe is not safe. He will pour his wrath down on those who rebel against him. But he is also good. And when he brings the good news of the gospel and those who, who receive it, who are brought into his family, they are the recipients of his kindness and his grace. Friends, let's not forget who he is. And when God exercises his wrath on those who rebelled against his kindness and graciousness, when he unleashes his just judgment upon those who scoffed at the gospel, all those who are his elect will know the magnitude of their salvation. 
They will see the magnificence of his grace and mercy. They will know that they are truly blessed to be called sons and daughters. And they will bow down and worship him with joy and gladness for who he is and for what he has done for them. The king of kings has come and he has come to rule again. That is what he's promising The Lord is returning. What do you think about that? Now, we move from the fact that the character of his coming is foretold. Uh, This should say the timing of his coming is unknowable. Did not realize that was the case there. Secondly, the timing of his coming is unknowable. So now we're asking the question, when will it happen? And there are two parables or illustrations that are, that are brought out by Jesus in this prophecy. And there's some other information along with them that kind of are packaged in these two illustrations. I try to put them together. So just think of these two illustrations and these other things that kind of go along with it just kind of to help us keep it neat and tidy. Notice verse 28 and following. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has used a fig tree as an illustration, is it? And what's actually interesting is that Jesus entered the temple and As he enters the temple on the way, we find this barren fig tree used as an illustration of the barrenness of the nation of Israel. Now he leaves the temple and we find him using the fig tree again. But here it is a reminder of hope. It's a reminder of of God's provision. So this fig tree kind of bookends Jesus' temple ministry. Now what does this parable mean? Well, first of all, you know when springtime events are occurring, in other words, fig tree is bearing leaves, you know that the summer is just around the corner. It's not yet there, but it's just around the corner. So also when you see evidences that some of God's promises are being fulfilled, you can be sure that the rest will happen as well. Okay? So he's saying in this prophecy, here are some things that are going to take place. And what he's saying to them then is when you see these other things take place, you know that the rest then will certainly take place. It doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the next few minutes, but it does mean that the necessary events that need to take place, which delayed his coming, have been reached. So nothing stands in his way now. His coming is truly Imminent after these things have taken place. Now, the scripture uses other words to describe the same thing. Jesus says, I am coming soon. We're also told by the Apostle Peter that the end of all things is at hand. Doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately, the idea is it's near, it's soon. It is certain. 
So since there's nothing standing in the way of his return, since the characteristics of the last days have all been fulfilled up to, including and after the destruction of the, the temple in AD 70, the next event is the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory. Now I just want to kind of step back a little bit here because I think there is a debate about uh, only one kind of aspect of this prophecy where there may still be a delay. And, and just look at verse 10 of uh, Mark's uh, gospel here of chapter 13. It says, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So there is this, this, this communication of something has to happen before all these things are fulfilled. Now that's still in the category of what happens before AD 70, but the ongoing time then where these things will, would be ongoing characteristics of those last days. It would seem to me that over the course of 2,000 years that this prophetical statement has been fulfilled. Missionaries started being sent out in the apostolic era and they've continued to this day, but in all honesty, we don't know, and in reality, we can't know and so today, there are thousands of people groups around the world. We call them unreached people groups. Well, they're unreached in this modern era, but we don't know if somehow they were reached before because we go into some places today where the gospel has already been. But today, it's barren, right? So the point here is this, that whether we know or we don't know, this is our responsibility to take the gospel to the nations. We trust God that in his timing, he is accomplishing his purposes. So now, connected to this parable of the fig tree are some further explanations. Verse 30 and 31, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what is this generation? And honestly, there, is a, there are some, some real debates among good uh, believers as to what this is talking about. And this is where frameworks come in. Some suggest that the expression, this generation, means all the events listed in this prophecy must take place within the time frame of one generation. In other words, believe that they believe that all of Mark 13, at least the prophecy part of that, is going to take place at the end of the last days in a special time of tribulation and the Lord's return. And so one generation is going to see all that taking place. Others say that this is an expression that means race or mankind. So in other words, it's talking about the race of people. But in my understanding, it's best to see this expression in its own context and referring to what it seems here that Jesus is saying. Jesus is giving this prophecy to the disciples. The events that he's just revealed to the disciples will all take place in their generation. Within 40 years of this prophecy, Jerusalem will be overrun and Titus, uh, by Titus, and the temple will be destroyed. Now, that is what's natural in this text, and there isn't any reason to interpret it any, in any other way unless we're wanting to fit our frameworks into this text. And remember, we don't force our frameworks onto the text, we must allow the text to develop our frameworks. We don't work from the framework down, we work from the text up. So in my understanding, this generation is referring to the generation of the disciples who would become the apostles. They would see the destruction of the temple and these characteristics of the last days that Jesus was talking about, but they wouldn't necessarily see the coming of the Lord. He's talking about the characteristics then of of what happens between verses 5 and verse 23. 
That's what the these things are talking about. Here's how one commentator restates verse 30. Within the present generation, all the events that are guaranteed to precede the arrival of the Son of Man, including the uh, desecration and destruction of the temple, they will be fulfilled. If ordinary history should go on after that, and he's speaking from the the framework of, of, of what the disciples are listening to, if ordinary history should go on after that, and if there is no, and of this there is no guarantee, then at every minute we must reckon with this possible arrival of the Son of Man. He is at the very gates. So in other words, that was the generation that, that Jesus was speaking to. That these things are referring to the prophecies that he has already given from verses 5 through verse 23. And so it cannot refer to everything that is included there which, would, which would, be, would also take into, into consideration his return. It, they're talking about those things that happened before his return. So the false Christ, the wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the famines, and ultimately the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So friends, this, this fig tree illustration helps us understand that he is near. He'll be here soon. His coming is at hand. Secondly, the parable of the faithful servant. Now, we're going to take a, a minute to get to the parable, but I just want us to think about this. We, we are living in, a, in an age where we're almost used to individuals or cults becoming famous because of their continual efforts to know exactly when the Lord would return. Let me list a few here for you. The Jehovah's Witness cult has had at least nine failed predictions of Christ's second coming by their head men in that particular era, going back to the 1800s. Edgar Wisenant wrote 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. And when it didn't happen, he wrote another book and predicted that it would take place in 89. It was kind of like a, oops, I forgot about this one year. And then he wrote in 1993 and gave 23 reasons why the rapture would occur in 1993. And when that didn't happen, he wrote another book predicting the Lord's judgment in 1994. Uh, Easy money, friends. People buy this stuff. The Bay Area's Harold Camping four times predicted the Lord's return, but all of them came and went. Of course, he's now deceased, but he believed that the Holy Spirit had been removed and, and just really strange things. More recently, there's been some panic that the world was going to end according to the Mayan calendar on December 21st, 2012. All these things kind of do put people in this kind of charge and questioning thing. And then, I must say, even more recently, John Hagee, the pastor of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio, Texas, promoted that the blood moon that took place from April 15th in 2014 until September 28th, 2015, would usher in the Lord's kingdom. Now, friends, all of these prophecies failed. They have come and gone. But people will still try to figure out dates. People are just consumed with this stuff. And when Christians stand up and throw out dates that are contrary to what God's word says here, we do a disservice to our testimony. It damages the cause of Christ and the spread of the gospel because people think you guys are a bunch of kooks. 
And quite frankly, when people do this kind of stuff, they are. Because they're not reading scripture. They're denying what it says. And we need to hear Christ's words and believe them. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, what? No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now let's just kind of walk through that a little bit. The expression day or hour cannot be replaced with month and year or anything like it. The, the expression that day recalls Old Testament uh, prophecies and concepts of the day of the Lord, the day when the, the, the Lord will ultimately come and he'll intervene and he will judge the nations. Now, Jesus here is saying that the time of his return is unknown. But does it strike you a little strange that he doesn't know the timing of it. Ah, what's going on there? Is, is, some, is Jesus somehow less than the Father now? Is, is, is he no longer God? I thought he was omniscient. I thought he was all-knowing. Well, certainly Jesus is fully God. What we have here is Jesus willfully acknowledging his humanity. In fact, if we, uh, if we went to Philippians 2, we would come away with an understanding that Jesus, in coming to this earth in full humanity, let go of the privileges of heaven and also willfully set aside the free exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, when he came and he was incarnated and he took upon himself the form of a servant, he was made in the likeness of man. He was like us fully. He did not somehow cheat by using his divine attributes. You know, if he's kind of like, you know, as a teenager, he's sitting around one day and he's like, oh man, I'm hungry. You know how teenagers love to eat, right? You know, he goes to the refrigerator and it's like, there's no milk in there. And where, where, where am I going to get my cereal from? You know, oh, I know. Poof, I can create it. No, he willfully set aside the free exercise of his divine attributes so that he would live his life on this earth just like you and I. So when Jesus goes into the temple when he was 12 years old and the people were marveling at what he was saying and how he was interpreting the scriptures, it's not because somehow he had this divine knowledge, but he grew in wisdom and stature and the fear of God and in the fear of man, he, 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 was, he was an example. He was a perfect specimen. He studied the word of God, and he connected the word of God. And that's why when he went into the temple and he interacted with those people there, they were like, wow. It's not because he was somehow exercising his divine attributes. When he is baptized, commissioning him into ministry, the father then releases some of those divine freedoms so that Jesus, in his, his ministry on the earth now, under the submission of the Father, is able to exercise some of those divine attributes, demonstrating that he is the Son of God. But not everything. So for Jesus to say, I don't know, is a true statement. Why? Because it had not been revealed to him by the Father in his human form. Hopefully that helps you think through this. Now, let's bring us now to this parable, this final parable or illustration 
that Jesus uses to help us solidify what we are called to do as we wait for his return. We're called to do two things, to be on guard, which means to be discerning. Secondly, to keep awake, which literally means to be faithful. So it says in verse 33 and following, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now imagine that your boss gives you a big job to do, big project that you're going to work on, and then he leaves on a trip and he promises to return sometime soon to see how well you have worked on that job. After one week, he hasn't come back. So you get a little lazy and don't work as hard. After a month, he still hasn't returned. Someone tells you he's coming tomorrow, but he doesn't. So now you only work when the weather is good. After one year, he still hasn't come. And you now think that he's never coming back. In fact, some of your friends are telling you to forget about him. They're saying, he was playing a fast joke on you. He said he'd be back, but he isn't back, is he? He's just fooling you. You're the one everyone's laughing at. So slowly, and giving into the pressure that is around you and the voices that are speaking into your life, you begin to lose faith that what he said is actually going to happen. And you stop believing that he is going to return you just give up on the project and it just sits there and, and weeds start to grow and, and it becomes kind of, you know, it starts falling apart and soon you're forgotten about it completely. You're now just living your life, pursuing your own objectives and you've forgot about your boss and the project that he's given you to do. Then suddenly, in a flash of activity, your boss comes back and he wants to see you and he wants to see how you've done and he wants to see the project he started and he wants to see the finished job. When he arrives, what will he say to you? What will you say to him? The point is while we wait, we can be so susceptible to sin that causes us to drift from what God has called us to. So Jesus cautions and commands us to stay awake, to remain faithful. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. He's saying, as you wait, don't lose focus. Don't forget that much of what I have promised has come true, and there is still more that I have promised that will be fulfilled. So don't forget about the certainty of my return. Look for it. Long for it. Linger on it with joy and anticipation. Let it motivate your life to live that life for his glory. So not only are we to be discerning, which is the primary message of verses 5 through 23, but we are to be faithful. We're like a security guard at a house, keeping an eye out for, for any kind of changes or anything that might be suspicious or any, any activity that will happen to indicate the Lord's return. We're to look for his return because he has promised to return. And Peter gives us counsel about how we are to live because the Lord return, Lord's return is at hand. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Turn there with me. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. And we'll read through verse 11. Just hear the things that Peter is encouraging his recipients to consider because the Lord and his return is near or soon. He says, the end of all things, this is verse 7 of chapter 4, is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as God's stewards or as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we're not just to abandon everything, say the Lord's going to come and I'm just going to sit and wait. It's a a wait that is a diligent waiting. It's a waiting that that means we're working and we're we're doing what he's supposed to be, he's called us to do. In other words, if there's this project he's given us, it's called life and it's called family, it's called the church, it's called the gospel, and we are to be diligent and purposeful and and careful as we apply ourselves to do and to be what God has called us to be, anticipating that he's coming back. And then when he comes back, we can be recognized and seen by God as those who have been faithful. Now notice what it says in verses 35 and following. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. We're not to fall asleep on the job. But unfortunately, this is the drift that even the followers of Christ, even the elect, can be susceptible to. See, we're called to be discerning and faithful disciples as we wait the coming of the Lord. Jesus' words here anticipate his passion, the last night of his suffering. I don't think it's a surprise that, that this is here, even in his prophecy. You have here these, these four watches of the night. In the evening, which is when the disciples and Jesus had the Last Supper. At midnight, when Jesus is arrested. When the the rooster crows in the story of the passion, that's when Peter denies Christ and he remembers and there's that piercing look. And then in the morning, it says, lest he come and find you asleep. Now, isn't that what Jesus and the disciples struggle with that night? (laughs) Here they are in the midst of of this this incredible night of activity and what are they doing? I mean, they're, they're falling asleep on the job. So this statement looks forward to what the disciples will fail to do in just a few days, and it fits into the context of this whole prophecy. Think about this. As Jesus is giving this prophecy, he has in mind now these these peaks, these mountain peaks, and the first prophetic mountain peak is actually going to be his suffering and death on the cross because he's already prophesied that, and he's now referring back to this here. The next peak is going to be the destruction of of Jerusalem and the temple in particular, which is going to be about 40 years later. 
And he's saying, listen, you're going to believe when you, when, as soon as you realize I'm gone, it's all going to connect, right? All the, all the dominoes are going to fall in the right place. The, the, the pennies are going to drop. You're going to recognize that what I said is true, and you're going to be like, ah, now I understand. And that's going to give you faith now to see the next prophecy and be prepared for it, the destruction of Jerusalem and all the, the, the characteristics of that, that next era, but then when you see the destruction of Jerusalem, you know then this, this big peak, this peak now which is the coming of the Lord, is going to happen. So all of this is not just to somehow give you charts and dates, although there is process to it. It is there to give these disciples comfort and counsel and certainty about the fact that the Lord will return. And he says, and what I say to you, I say to all. So he's saying, this is not just for the disciples. This is for everyone. And that's one of the reasons why we seek to preach the gospel to the nations. Not just the disciples, not just to the church, but to the nations. Because the Lord is coming again. And then he says, stay awake. Now I just want to drive home as we bring things to a conclusion here. I'm sorry, I didn't put that up there for you. But I think you get the idea. Um, in conclusion, I, there's two things I want us to consider here, just driving home these statements. Jesus calls us, first of all, to be discerning. Now, that doesn't mean that we always need to be looking for signs of his coming. It, it means that we need to be discerning about what is going on in this world that might lead us astray from putting our faith and trust in his word. It means we need to be able to discern between what is true and what is false. False teachers will come promoting false ideas and false theology and false doctrine and false practices. Can we discern the difference between what is truly biblical and what is not? And it's not usually crystal clear. Sometimes there are little nuances. Can we identify that? The weight in Jesus' prophecy is that even the elect, his church, can be led astray and deceived. So what are we to do to be sure that we're not easily deceived? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Listen to his word. Study his word. Learn his word. Now, by this, I'm not talking about just be a, be a you know, a, a, someone who, who just has the word of God so full in your head and you just have knowledge. I'm talking about living it out, learning it practically, understanding what is being said. And maybe the word of God is something you still have not really kind of grasped and you haven't got the big picture. and You're still learning how to, how to discern and, and understand it. It's a lifelong process. And we must, we must, we must value the word of God, recognize its sufficiency for us as well as the fact that it is far more sure than any experience that you may have. If that's what the disciples said about actually standing in the presence of Jesus saying, listen, that was great, but the word of God is more sure, that should say something to us. Don't look for the experience. Look to the word of God that is the more sure word of prophecy. Remember what Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That is a promise. That's something we hold on to. And if that is true, then we need to seek to understand and grow in our understanding of his 
word. His word is trustworthy, it's clear, and it's a guide for us to follow. So don't get lazy when it comes to growing in your understanding of God's word. Keep pressing on so that your discernment will grow. Secondly, there's the call to be faithful. The call to be faithful. To be faithful simply means that you are a dependable servant of God. You are listening to him and you're being obedient to him and you will do what God has called you to do. Now, yes, you are a sinful creature, although you're created in Christ Jesus. He knows that you will sin along the way, but you are one who is who is recognizing that sin, you're identifying that sin, you're keeping short accounts, and your desire is to live your life in a way that pleases the Lord. Your desire is to work hard and by that diligence give others a picture of what it means to trust in God. It means that you look for opportunities to serve and to help others, that you guard the gospel, that you pray for moments in your life where, where you can proclaim the truth of God's word. It means that you see the church um, Uh, that the church be what it needs to be for the glory of God. Friends, we're called to be discerning. We're called to be faithful. And friends, I just want to challenge you. Those two principles are throughout this passage. And those two principles that I want to ask you to reflect on and to say, how well am I doing with my discernment? Do I just leave it for the pastors to take care of? Do I just you know, listen to everything that might be on Christian radio? Is my discernment more from you know, KSFO or Rush Limbaugh or something like that or, or some kind of other liberal station? I don't know what you listen to. Where is your discernment coming from? And I just, this, I mean, this week I was... You know, I had KSFO and I was listening to something. It's so easy to get drawn in and, and get angry about what this person did here and what that person did there. And God wants us to get passionate about his coming. He wants us to be discerning as we wait for his coming. And he wants us to be faithful stewards while he's gone so that when he comes, he can look at us and say, well done. Well done. So friends, this this prophecy has more to do with our character in anticipation of his coming and living life in preparation of his coming than it has to do with trying to figure out exactly when. And Jesus is ministering to the disciples and he's ministering to the people in Rome by virtue of this gospel being written out, Mark putting it, into words now being sent to Rome so that the believers there who are receiving it a couple years before the destruction of the temple can themselves see and hear what Jesus says they've known about his resurrection, they will know about the destruction of Jerusalem, and they will then, based on that, be eager to anticipate the Lord's return because he has proved himself already again and again. And the same is true for us. Do we believe what the Bible says? Or are we going to somehow drift? And friends, it's so easy to drift, isn't it? Are we going to drift? Or are we going to say, God, help me to be discerning. Help me to be faithful in anticipation of your return. Lord, help us today. 
We need your help. Thank you, Lord, for, for feeding us, for giving us instruction, for directing us through these prophecies. Thank you, Lord, for allowing Mark to, to, to record this so that we could have an understanding of what you said and the power of what you said. Lord, you are a mighty king. And you will one day come back to this earth and you will come to gather your elect, but you will come also to judge those who are in rebellion against you. Lord, we long for it, we anticipate it. There is a sense, Lord, in which we fear it for the sake of others. And Lord, our heart is broken because people have rejected the good news of your son, Jesus Christ. And and how he has paid for their sin, and how they can be reconciled to you. Lord, we truly have good news. May we share it, may we proclaim it, may we live it with discernment. And Lord, with, with a stewardship that would demonstrate our faithfulness for you, we ask in your name.